Hello, everybody. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense, the podcast dedicated to everything detection dogs. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and we're coming to you from out here in Scent City, Las Vegas at the Ford Canine Training Center. And I wanted to thank everybody for the great support from the last episode I did with Pete Stevens, who happened to be here going through our first canine cognition instructor class and the puppy cognition class. This episode, I get to have some guests that are also in town. They are currently doing a uh, just doing some research here, utilizing some of the canine teams out here in Las Vegas, and that's going to be Dr. Nathan Hall and Dr. Mallory Deshant, and we'll get to them in just a second. They have been on the podcast before, but we're going to talk about a bunch of new research they did and uh, just all kinds of good stuff when it comes to how to understand dogs better, uh, some methods that we do with, with odor, a lot of things in regards to what do we really truly believe when it comes to what odors do and what the reality is. So a lot of good conversation coming up. Uh, first things first, what's new? Well, there's going to be a lot of projects and collaborations that are happening. One is just what I just mentioned, and that dovetails to on June 20th to 24th, myself, Nathan Hall, and Simon Prinz will be doing a seminar here at Ford Canine in Las Vegas. On the Ford Canine website will be where you can sign up. There will be a limit to the number of audit spots, but more specifically, we are going to select working spots. So if you're interested in a working spot, you're going to need to send a video of you and your dog doing whatever detection exercise that you're looking for more information on or help with. And with those submissions, myself, Simon Prinz, and Dr. Nathan Hall will review those videos and pick our top eight people that will have working spots. Now, the working spots will cost more than audit spots, but the benefit of this is by us picking these specific dogs for whatever the type of help that the individual is looking for or to improve on a, per, on a certain type of detection skill will benefit the audit audience. You guys will get to see all of the things that we're going to work on and each one will be probably a different type of topic. So if you are interested in a working spot with Dr. Nathan Hall, Simon Prinz, and myself, on June 20th to 24th this year, we will have you submit all of your requests uh, and video. This video just needs to be a few minutes long or good, good enough to kind of demonstrate to us what you're trying to work on with your dog. And from there, you will get an email invite to attend the seminar in a working spot. So we'll probably pick 10 even though we only need eight, and that's just because inevitably people have to drop out or make changes for whatever reason. So we want to have some backups in there uh, on the chance that that happens. So I hope everybody's excited. The website will be updated, so you can go straight to the website, fill out an audit spot, sign up at least for that, because, again, we'll be limited 
I'm not sure the exact number, but we're probably going to be, I'm going to just guess right now, 40 or under uh, audit spots. And like I said, the eight working spots. So that's the Nathan Hall, Simon Prince, Cameron Ford seminar, June 20th to 24th. I am also collaborating and doing uh, instruction with Mike Ellis. So Mike Ellis and I, I'll be up at his place May 9th to the 13th. Now that one's already locked in. Um, all the spots are taken on that one. Uh, we will be doing another one uh, coming up later this year, and that will be announced uh, as soon as we have those dates worked out. Uh, could be two more times this year that he and I will be together. Uh, definitely here in Vegas and then potentially uh, other locations as well. Um, we've also heard a lot of you guys when it came to the type of classes that uh, you're looking for going forward. So there will be new five-day workshops or three-day seminars here at Ford Canine. Also, these five-day workshops and three-day seminars will be able to be done at your location. So if you ever are interested, once you go to our website and you see the various uh, five-day workshops or three-day seminars that you would like to have hosted at your location, you can contact us. But the easy answers for most of the questions that have happened, just go to the About Us section on the Ford K9 website, click on the FAQ, and all the information is there. So we also have a last update Many of you guys have been, of course, asking for the uh, when the classes go online. So our cognition classes and uh, odor pays class and some of the classes where our guest instructors that we have, those start going live March 1st. So again, you will get emails if you are members of Ford K9. There'll be plenty of emails sent out to you guys in regards when these classes are live on the website. Uh, so you can sign up and start taking some of these classes that you've been asking for. And then a little update with DDT. So, of course, I've had a podcast with Georgie Armstrong, and I've been promoting it on my various social media feeds. I've really wanted to get DDT over here, but, you know, as my requirements grew with all of these other things that I have going on with 4K9, the podcast, the YouTube channel, all kinds of stuff, um, and there's a lot of legal and insurance things that have to be accomplished. I just can't do it all. So I have to kind of bow out as far as being the person to kind of run, organize and spearhead DDT. So if you are interested in being that person or you're interested in getting DDT going as the sport here, we're not talking, we're talking like you need to be the president and get it going with DDT, setting it up as legitimately as a business, all the things that I had to look into uh, and working with Georgie Armstrong, you can do so. Reach out to her. Um, I am more than happy to promote it. I want to still help the sport grow. I just know I, I can't do everything <laughs> as much as I would love to. That is going to be an enormous uh, chunk of time that has to be dedicated as well as uh, resources and other things that I have to focus those things for me on Ford K9 and I can't split it that much. That's a, that's a lot for me. So um, if somebody is interested, there's a social media post that'll been out by this podcast. Um, go contact Georgie Armstrong. Awesome person to work with. I know she's trying to get it growing. Uh, 
And again, like I said, I'm more than happy to help promote it, get the word out, that kind of thing. So as much as I love to do it, I have to pass the baton on to somebody who can devote more of that important time to help that amazing sport grow. So I want to also get into my show sponsors. Of course, I have these people to thank. The first one is Leash and Harness Coffee. Again, thank you guys so much for your support of the Canines Talking Sense podcast. Anybody who puts the coupon code Ford Canine on the Leash and Harness Coffee website gets 10% off their order. So coupon code Ford Canine gets you 10% off your Leash and Harness Coffee. So go check out leashandharnesscoffee.com. Go order some great, amazing coffee and get 10% off with your coupon code Ford Canine. Also, Psy Canine, home of the TAD. Awesome product, as you guys know. Many of you guys have heard me talk about it. Go check out psyk9.com. Go check out Precision Explosives. Precision Explosives makes the training aids that are of real odor but are legal to possess. So Precision Explosives, Todd Wilbur, go check him out. Precision Explosive website down in below in the comment section. Also, my good friend over at Integrity Noseworks, go contact Bill Gaskins. Are you looking for your next nosework seminar? Are you looking for a judge? Bill Gaskins has been phenomenal as an instructor on our webinars. Great resource of information. Go check out Integrity Noseworks, and that's Noseworks with an X. If you are looking for a canine software tracking system or a place to do your records keeping, go check out PackTrack. PackTrack is a great canine program for your records keeping. It's an app on your phone. It is also web-based. It tracks basically anything and everything. There is a ton of collaborative ways to utilize PackTrack. If I'm the trainer, I can create a training problem and then instantly share that to all those who attended. So it saves everybody from writing all the same stuff over and over again. Go check out PackTrack on the internet. PackTrack, uh, you can just Google that. There'll be the link in the show notes down below. If you know who Andy Wyman is, the part of the four guys who created the Hits Canine Conference, he, he is one that has de- developed PackTrack. It is a great resource to go to uh, for any questions, customer support, great guys. Go check them out. And speaking of hits, hits is going to be in Orlando this year in August. Go check out the hits canine.net website. There is a ton of instructors, ton of vendors. It's going to be in Orlando, just outside Disney world. It's a great event. That event is happening August 16th through the 19th. So go check out hitsk9.net, get all your information, register early, save that money, go check out Hits K9 Conference. It'll be a great time. We're talking probably about a thousand different uh, officers, canine handlers, etc. all at one event, great networking, all that kind of good stuff. So all I got to say, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you for the support of Canines Talking Sense. Thank you for the amazing growth that we are seeing, the networking, the sharing of information. I just want everybody to remember, 
We are all in this together. So many of us, whether you're sport or you're professional or what have you, we all share the same struggles. We have the same desires for knowledge. We have the same desire to be better. So the more we work and share information amongst each other and not so much the lines in the sand, we will all benefit from that. And this episode has a ton of information that is all about helping both sides of the equation. It's science-related information, specifically with odor, how dogs are performing, lots of good stuff. So I hope everybody enjoys this episode. Again, as usual, questions, please email me, info at FordCanine.com or just go visit the FordCanine.com website, and I hope to hear from you guys. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. Today's episode, I get to sit down with Dr. Nathan Hall and newly minted Dr. Mallory Deshant from Texas Tech University, who are both here at Ford Canine doing some research and some training. Uh, so I want to get into this episode kind of going back in time where we did a uh, a study together on the effects of handler bias or handler information. Uh, and with that, that came a lot of, um, you know, I would say controversy, but feedback uh, in the detection dog industry in relation to how handlers, you know, did they affect their dogs? What was the value of double blind and things like that? So, uh, uh, Nathan, welcome to the show. Welcome back. And Mallory, also welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll start off with give a little background for those who don't know that study, uh, telling us about uh, the study itself, what it was, and then what the end result kind of was based on the data. Uh, that study, um, this one was a paper we published in Frontiers. It is open access, so anyone who wants to read it is more than welcome to read it. I think we have it on our website. If not, I should put it on our website. And if I don't, then you should send me an email to yell at me for not putting it on the website. Sure. I'm really late at putting that stuff up. But anyway, um, so what was it? The question that we sort of had was, um, what is the sort of impact of a lot of sort of subtle things uh, that a handler might know about a task during a search? And how does that impact the overall uh, search in of itself? Mm -hmm. um, so we know from studies long, long ago, um, not even real studies, just almost anecdotal reports, but then subsequent research went on, you know, that situations can happen where um, very subtle and unconscious biases or subtle knowledge can lead to um, sort of outstanding performances of an animal without you recognizing that they're actually just picking up off of your own cues. Probably most of you know the famous horse, Clever Hans, uh, who was quite a miracle in, in, in what he was able to accomplish. Um, but 
I don't know if we need to go in that whole story. But no, you can. Yeah, we they can should pass on. Okay. The short Cliff Notes version was the dog or the horse basically mimicked what the audience fed back to them by clapping. So they would do a math problem, and when the audience would clap, the horse would stop stomping its foot. So then they realized the dog or the horse I keep saying dog, the horse didn't know how to count. So in short, the horse used the influence from the audience and other things to solve the problem. Uh, but it was even more subtle than that was what sure. was so crazy. So it was to the point of simply um, to, the, to the point that you didn't even know what you were doing. And I think that is an important point because that is sort of, you know, you may not even know to what degree you've started to reach into your back pocket mm-hmm. that caused the dog to alert or you are convinced that you have not started to reach into your back pocket until the dog started to alert. But you just picked up on something and then the dog sort of picks that up. So the, the subtlety of how that happens is really important because you don't even know it in what you're doing, and it doesn't have to be very big behaviors. It can be very subtle hand movements. Maybe it's just you slowing down when you get to the, to the, to the target or where you think the target is. But anyway, back to this study. Um, essentially, and, and there were other studies, uh, particularly a famous study that was done um, that looked at this and and in that study, sort of handlers were intentionally deceived as to where the location of, of where a target might be when, in fact, there were no targets. Uh, and, the, and the sort of takeaway story of that is that when handlers had this sort of implanted thought or belief that they should be finding something, there was an increase in false positive rates uh, based off of that, particularly if there were uh, markers there. And there were definitely subtleties. This isn't like a, is you know, always a uniform thing. But our question was, is, well, how much does even, you know, sort of, sort of more subtle things where you don't even necessarily intentionally deceive someone by saying, you know, where, you know when you see this cue, that means that there's a hide there. Mm-hmm. What if you just sort of generated, an ex, you know, a, a, a setup that you just became to believe that there would be hide? So, for example, you know, you go into room one, there's a hide. You go into room two, there's a hide. What are you expecting by the time you get to room three? Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially some handlers uh, were explicitly told that there are going to be uh, uh, three rooms that you'll be searching and there will be exactly two hides. Mm-hmm. And other handlers were told nothing. Yep. And how does even just such a subtle differentiation like that uh, change things? And one of the things that we were looking at is does that change the rate of false positives? Uh, and the answer was no in, the, in that case for the study. But it did seem to change handler behavior. It changed how long you stuck around in that last room. It changed um, uh, how much the dog looked back at the handler. I think that was mostly for the sport dogs, right? Yeah, it was mostly for the sport dogs with the number of look backs. And then also for the sport handlers, if they were searching a longer period of time in that third room, they were more likely to call a false. Yeah, so even though there was not an overall difference in falses between sort of whether you knew um, or not, you can kind of, if you were thinking of it as like a, um, you know, a, a pen that's kind of moving along on a line of, you know, when does a false happen? The longer in time you get is the increased mm-hmm. probability of a false happens. The dog searches, nothing searching, nothing searching, nothing. And it was towards the end when a false were to happen, whereas correct alerts tend to happen much sooner. So, sure. uh, you know, having these kind of just even subtle different differentiations in what your expectations might be changed enough of the handler behavior which did have impacts on, on the subsequent dog behavior, not by changing overall false alert rates, but most definitely by changing how you were acting, how you were behaving, and, and subsequently what the dogs did. 
Yeah. And in Maui, you know, we did also did the double blind aspect. Mm-hmm. What did you see, you know, in doing the double blind was double blind, make it or break it. Like if you don't do double blind, you're not reliable or is doing double blind, um, not much different than single blind. Yeah. So for both the sport and the professional group, we did compare the single blind to the double blind and accuracy was similar within both of those across both handler groups. The important thing though, to note there is that Mallory was the differentiator between the single and double blind. And I don't know, you can't see Mallory, but she doesn't give off many cues anyway to begin with. So it, it, you should also take it from an interpretation. That doesn't mean that there can be no difference. It partially yeah. depends on, uh, you know, obviously what, who your evaluator is and what yeah. cues they might be giving off. So in this case, you know, the question was is, could you be controlling it? If you were trying to be an impartial judge, can you control it? Are there things you can't control? Mm-hmm. In this case... I'm very good at being impartial Mallory judge. was very good at being an impartial <laughs> judge. So sure. it most certainly is possible, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody. universally or that yeah. everybody can do that. Yeah. So then the question being, or begging to, to know the answer kind of too, in the scale of doing detection work, how would you rate or how important is it to do double blind? And I'll wrap that into how important is it if you are a dog team that faces legal scrutiny, how important is double blind? Uh, I mean, I think personally, uh, and I guess we can, should also make a differentiation between how many blinds or is one single versus double. Cause I mean, I guess the dog to some degree is always kind of blind, right? Sure. So then the question is, is the handler blind? But then is everybody around them blind as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, and I think for our study, it, it indicated that if that person who is the judge is impartial, then that single versus double, if the handler is blind, is sure. uh, it is less of an important thing. But don't uh, I guess? But the fact that the handler should be blind, that one is I think always critical. And in fact, I think that I just see such difference in. And performance and overall sort of confidence if the handlers routinely run blind because they don't learn to try and mm-hmm. overinterpret what their dog is doing and they know that they need a very clear signal for this to work because if there's not a clear signal then they don't know and I think a lot of times sometimes when we take you know folks that have been working single blind for a long time or sorry not blind at all for a long time and even just go single blind. So there now the handler is blind. Mm-hmm. You know, there becomes a big change where it's like, oh, I don't know. I think that was alert, but I'm not sure. I've never not known before. Yeah. And I don't know how much of it is just because, you know, maybe the dog didn't know what they were doing, which could be part of it. But it could also just simply be the fact that you've never run your dog without knowing. So you don't know how to do that. You haven't practiced mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. running your dog where the only knowledge that you have is using your dog. And if that's how you're going to deploy operationally, yeah. then that's how you have to do it, you know? And, and, and you know, you, we've all seen, you know, between the research you've done and us watching dogs together is handler's confidence in reading their dog is one of the most critical aspects. And, bringing it down to the details aspect of knowing the difference between when your dog is interested in something versus on odor is critical because there's a lot of similar type behaviors Mm -hmm. and setting up training where you have to deal with that and be, you know, 
figuring out, okay, I'm calling this. Is it interest or alert? And uh, the more they put themselves in those kind of equations, uh, we see improvement in teams who go through this blind, have to go through calling something. They find out if they're right or wrong. And even the dog seems to show improvement too. I mean, I'll let you kind of expand upon that, like some of the importance of, of things that we watch as trainers or even in the research side of things. Um, teams that push themselves into those, what I call like uncomfortable areas mm-hmm. of running blind, but then being reviewed and then having to make a decision. Are you calling this or you're not calling this? And, uh, Talk a little bit about that, the confidence that comes from, you know, or the importance in a sense that builds when you do things like that training wise. Yeah. I mean, I think the underlying, you know, mantra to all of it is, you know, train as you deploy. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be expected to go up into a crowded area and look at a bag that's sitting on the ground and you have no idea if something is in there and that's going to be a stressful situation. Do you want that to be the first time you've ever brought your dog up to a bag and you didn't actually know what the contents of mm-hmm. what was inside of that bag to be, right? Yeah. You don't want that to be your first time, you know, foray into not knowing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's going to change, you know, if you if you did that routinely and consistently um, and you, you know, you've learned through your training that I could go up and do this and have, you know, 95% or 100% confidence in my dog every time I go up to that situation then doing it in a real deployment would be, you know, a piece of cake, right? You, yeah. would, you would already have that background. Um, and I think, you know, watching people go from never knowing and then trying to be like, oh, my dog, my dog alerted to that one, but I'm not too sure, so let's just keep moving. And now uh, we go back again, and it alerts to a different oh, yeah. one. Now I'm not sure. <clears throat> Was this a real alert? Let me... Let me sort of see if the dog will come off of it. And then, oh, yeah. oh, let me see if the dog will come off of this one. I'm not sure. Let's try and go back to it. And from the dog's perspective, it's like, I told you the first time. So now I try to give you this one. And you won't accept this answer. And you won't accept that answer. And you won't accept this answer. So I'll try this answer. Well, maybe about this one. you know. And then yeah. they get it wrong. And then you're like, oh, no, what's going on here? And uh, you know, you can get performance degradation because you know if – if the dog is alerting and you don't feel confident enough to call it just because this is your first time not knowing, then you're putting the dog on extinction for, you know, yeah. uh, for, for making that alert. But then after you, you know, practice a lot of times uh, blinded, I think that cleans up beautifully to the point where, you know, you see an alert, you call it right away. No need to mess around. No need to, yep. you know, move on. And it's really good seeing that confidence kind of shift when handlers have to get pushed to that situation. And, and Mallory, I know you see it quite a bit. What are some of the things that you see handlers do that um, start to improve because they're applying these techniques? What have you seen like a change from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum as far as them like trying to, you know, the little testing measures to con- tr- convince themselves that the dog was on odor versus gaining that confidence? Yeah, I mean, similar to what Nathan said, you know, they're calling it a lot faster. They're not maybe waiting a little bit or they're just reading their dog better because they have more confidence. And yeah, I'd say that's pretty much what I've seen. Do you see a lot of handlers coming up with ways to kind of test the dog's indication? Um, I mean, maybe in the beginning when they're first, um, you know, starting the, the session or whatnot, perhaps they're pulling a bit on the the lead to test them to see if they'll come off the box or yep. um, things like that. But I think over time, once they've done enough trials with going blind, not knowing 
where the hide is or if there even is a hide, um, it definitely builds their, their confidence and they stop doing that. And as soon as the dog sits or stares, whatever its behavior is, they'll, they'll call it. And how important would you guys say increasing the frequency of blank trials, even if it's something simple as a lineup, like I use, you know, the PVC pipes um, or the boxes, how important is it to ensure that you're trying to at least incorporate more blanks? Would you say do that in the early stages of development training as I'm imprinting a dog? You know, the common thing is, I should say it this way, the common thing is many times when we're imprinting dogs, it's a high level of reinforcement. Basically, every run gets odor, gets reinforcement. At what point would you say, and I know this is going to be relative to dogs and dog teams, but how relevant and at what stage and how important, I should say, is it to start incorporating blank trials into that, you know, protocol system? Yeah, I mean, to go back to sort of train as you deploy, if your dog is going to have to, you know, get called out on a vehicle, search that vehicle, and there's actually a chance that there might not be something there, mm-hmm. then then you should also make sure that your dog can do that in training, right? And that yep. would be a blank run. If your dog is going to be expected to go up to a backpack that's sitting by a trash can out on the street and potentially clear it if there isn't something there, mm-hmm. then that should be a part sort of, of training. So, so blank runs can most certainly be... Um, you know, an important part of, but some of, of them won't do imagine. blank runs until, you know, maybe after the dog already knows all the odors and is already searching realistic environments. Is, is that, is it more important or is it critical to do these blank runs before you even get to that stage? Um, I mean, I guess it depends that I don't know. I don't know about sort of where it would need to be sort of incorporated okay. per se. But you also have to think about, you know, uh, you know, think about it from the dog's perspective as much as you can, right? Because if your game is, you know, if you're running some type of boxes or some type of scenario, and the game is always find where it is at, mm-hmm. and the answer is it is always somewhere here, then that is what the dog learns to play, mm-hmm. right? And if, and if that's not always going to be your deployment scenario, there is always something here, find where it's at, then you might have to think about, well, what is my deployment scenario and is my dog prepared for that kind of situation? And if you, you know, in some some situations, because there's, you know, you have so many different uh, listeners, there are going to be situations where it's always here somewhere. Sure. Just where is it at? In some cases, that's not the case. And then you sort of have to build that into as a part of training so that that, you know, things like an all clear are appropriate answers because sometimes things are all clear, you know? Sure. And, and luckily, you know, in, in several uh, several detection scenarios, all clears are actually probably the majority of situations of what happened. Yeah. Um, so definitely, you know, making sure that that is a part of the, the acceptable mm-hmm. response and that that training is going to mimic as much of what you have to do is, is ultimately going to be the, the underlying sort of rule, you know, sure. it's kind of the golden rule in a way, right? And, and, and I think that's what, you know, you summed it up nicely by saying, hey, what is your end goal? If your end goal uh, in whatever discipline you do has significant areas that are going to be blank or contain no odor, it's important to start teaching that context to the dog earlier on versus later in the sense that 
you know, they're, you're, it's almost like teaching coping skills in a sense. Like, hey, dog, there's going to be times where there's nothing here, and this is how we solve that, you know. And there's a level of reinforcement to that. So there's a question that comes up from time to time. People want to know, should I reinforce a blank search? Or if my dog tells me there's nothing here, should I reinforce that? Um, I'll let either one of you guys kind of answer that question. How important is it to give some form of reinforcer, or maybe you can even suggest the type of reinforcer in a sense, uh, for a blank? Yeah, that one's uh, that one's a diff- difficult question. We've dabbled a little bit in it. And the thing is that um, we, you know, I know some people would be, you know, die hard. You can never reinforce a blank sure. kind of situation. And the problem with this, and, you know, you're going to hate my answer because it's a very scientific, scientific <laughs> answer, and you're going to... I don't know. Well, yeah. Well, ultimately, the answer is I don't know, but I think it's actually just a very subtle it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is um, the it depends depends on what your particular scenario is. Is an all clear going to be, you know, an acceptable response that is happening, you know, almost as frequently as a target? You know, you have to think of it, you know, from a dog's perspective of, could I be correct 99.99999% of the time by making an all clear response? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, and I could get to my reinforcer a lot faster by doing that, then there becomes a tremendous incentive to just default to all clear. Everything's all clear. Yeah. I search three inches, all clear. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, and if you're, and if that miss, right? Is only happening, you know, your reinforcement rate is 99.999% of the time, yeah. except for that one in a thousand miss. But your entire purpose of being there is for that one in a thousand hit, right? Yeah. You know, kind of situation. Then you sort of have to figure out, well, how do I, how do I balance that? You know, sometimes it might be having operational deployments of, of targets mm-hmm. so that you can catch those misses more frequently and know and, you know, provide different types of reinforcement there. You can change the type of reinforcer that you yes. have. But the thing is that those parameters are going to be so specific to mm-hmm. your specific operational deployment scenario mm-hmm. that I cannot give any kind of universal answer. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a uniform or universal answer because just like you said, you know, I had this great conversation with a friend of mine. Uh, he's a mammal trainer for the Navy, but he's also a dog handler. And we had this conversation about that. And at the end of the day, the, we kind of agreed that, you know, context of the search is important. So if we're searching, let's say it's the average police officer who searches a car, the dog goes around the car, shows no odor or there's nothing here, dad, you can walk away. Maybe it's just a verbal praise. Good job. You know, and this is, I'm going to say this is training where you know the answer. So you set up the vehicle search, the handler runs it blind, goes around, says nothing's here. You're confirmed. Good boy. It's reinforcing. You're just using praise. You could even play if you wanted to, again, depending on your dog in front of you. But in this case, there is a level of reinforcement that happens. And the correct response was no response. And it was gratifying and engaging for the dog uh, versus just maybe the low key. Oh, good boy. Walk off, put him in the car. You know, um, like you said, it's a balance of not extinguishing behaviors, but also reinforcing the ones we desire plus desire of telling me there's nothing here by not trying to fool me into going, well, I can't find anything. You're not leaving. You have now presented the area four times. Okay. I'll just go with 
giving you the response that I think you want, which uh-huh. is whatever trained behavior that is. Yeah, no, like in our in our lab, right, we've definitely, if the target rate is going to be like around 50, 60%, we'll reinforce all clears, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a 50-50 shot. There's kind of no, there's no balance one way yeah. or the other. So, you know, then you're equally incentivized to tell me it's all clear or to tell me that there's a target there. So we typically reinforce that without issues. Yeah. We've also seen dog, some individual dog differences. Yeah, I was going to say, it's also a little bit dog dependent. We had one dog that was uh, responding to the reinforcing all clears and kept just calling all clears. But as soon as you stop reinforcing the all clears, that immediately was fixed yeah. within a couple sessions. But we also, in the exact same parameters, in the exact same study, we had two dogs who were performing yeah. at 100% with that same procedure. So it wow. was a very... It was a it was a dog dependent thing. That dog just right. picked up like, you know, I could get to my the end of trial, you know, by doing a really quick search and just started blowing past mm-hmm. it a couple of times oh. for, the, for the target. So it just it really depends on the individual dog, the parameters of your operational scenario. And I think that having universal, you know, uh, rules, you know, that, oh, you can't reinforce an all clear could be damaging as well as, sure. you know, you have to always reinforce all clears. Can also be damaging because it just it's all about the right balance and the right you know yeah. it depends answer there's no not. It, it's so true because well we live in this society of dog world um where we've had such ironclad it's this or it's that you know um where we're starting to get better at is going well it depends on that dog in front of you and the more you know that dog in front of you, the more success you'll particularly have. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, it's there's and there's still the arguments that fly around. And then, you know, of course, the social media world makes it a whole lot easier to do, do a lot of yelling at each other and say, you're wrong, you're stupid, my way is the best way. And none of that really truly has value um, versus going, you know what, I Say, do it. If your dog likes food, use food. If your dog likes toy, use a toy. If you like to use a conditioned reinforcer signal, use that. If your you dog, you know, performs well because you can, you know, toss your toy in and you're good at doing that, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it may not be each person's cup of tea. It may not work for that particular dog. Are there things that there we, we could all agree on? There's probably some general standards that we should follow when it comes to communication or uh, how we do things with odor. Um, but generally speaking, the better we know our dogs, the better we're going to do when it comes to deploying them and training them. So those are key things there. So the other thing, you guys did a study. We'll get into the odor a little bit. Um, describe the odor threshold study because that was you, uh, you guys both did that with Paul Bunker. And there was a lot of good information that came from that. Some pretty surprising, which was the results of when I believe it was 10 times higher or 10 times lower, what started happening with dogs. So, you know, again, either one of you guys can, can do that as Nathan stares down Mallory to give the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so either one of you guys, go ahead. Well, we've put together, uh, basically the entire question of concentration has now become a total of three studies now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, for a while we've sort of been learning that uh, generalization can be a, a gotcha issue a lot of times, you know, and things where you're like, well, you know, this chemical is also in, in this mixture, so the dogs would just find it. 
or you know you can take this and mix it into anything or and the dogs will just find it um you know and i, I and it, there becomes this almost uh if your dog doesn't find it well it's because you did something wrong yeah rather than trying to understand that there's behavioral phenomena that are underlying these kinds of things and i think sometimes you know generalization failures are real behavioral phenomena that we just blame a handler for and sure. saying that it was just bad training or you just didn't do it right or mm-hmm. if you didn't use this you know type of way or things like that but anyway that's a whole separate aside sure but the question was that we were got into was concentration Right, so we know that there have been like generalization issues that come with different types of odor mixtures, but what about if you were just using the exact same odorant, the same thing, but just changing the concentration, and what kinds of impacts does that have? And then secondly is how sensitive are the dogs if you uh, wanted to train them to say, I want an alert at this concentration or higher, or uh, you know, and anything below this concentration is not relevant. There was a particular field application uh, where they were wondering, you know, like, uh, you know, if you come across a concentration that's this low, it's not an issue for us, and mm-hmm. particularly with oil detection and for remediation. Sure. This isn't an issue. We don't need to worry about it. But if it's above this level, then that means that we need to further investigate. So how, you know, and we don't want every little tiny signal. We want where the big signals are. Sure. So the question was, is could we train that, you know, explicitly, if the concentration is higher than X, you, you alert. If concentration is lower than Y, you don't alert. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer was yes. Yeah. Um, so we found their, their threshold, um, and then we basically tested, you know, if we stop reinforcing this certain concentration, will they stop responding? And yes, but they'll still alert to, you know, a higher concentration or lower, depending whatever one you want. So altogether, if you want them to alert at a certain concentration you need to reinforce it if you don't want them you need to stop reinforcing and basically explicitly train that concentration that you want them to find so applying it let's say to your typical uh, i'll go with drug dog handler because they get their typical kits at certain weights so typically let's say two grams to five grams 10 grams 26 48 We'll go with those numbers. Those are pretty average. Um, What I think you guys also kind of found was if you keep working in those weight categories and very uh, infrequently or very rarely do you ever go really high or really low, dogs typically do not throw. And I saw numbers basically, I think it was what, 6% or less? you know, ability once it kind of went to certain thresholds, high and low, like dogs weren't just the, the accuracy level dropped tremendously. So, um, yes, I guess. So there are lots of different studies that we had in there. So one that we found, uh, particularly in this one, the target was amyl acetate. Um, but that one, we found that when we manipulated, uh, the concentration by more than tenfold, we didn't get a spontaneous alert. And mm-hmm. that was lo- largely just looking at low. Um, and that, is, and what I mean by that is, uh, the dog did not give the solid hold duration that was recorded by a computer mm-hmm. for an alert. Once we decreased what we trained them explicitly to by more than ten percent, yeah. Um, and then we were able to train even within. I think it was I can't remember what the two concentrations were, but within that tenfold range, mm-hmm. we were able to pick two concentrations and explicitly teach them to discriminate between those two and be very successful at that 
um, while maintain, while suppressing responses below that and maintaining responses higher than that. And then we also did a couple other studies. Uh, one was uh, where Mallory was looking at, well, what's the importance if you want the dog to go low of explicitly training low? Yeah. And in that one, uh, made up a heck of a lot of dilutions. <laughs> that was a lot of, uh, of uh, pipetting uh, and jars where basically the dogs were, were trained to a certain concentration. So say, you know, you're training to the same weight, although weight is a bad measure of concentration. Sure, of course, this, yeah. was a, this was a liquid. So she was training the same liquid concentration over and over and over and over again. And then we would measure every dog's threshold. Yeah. And the dogs would get, you know, this nice threshold. They typically, when you're measuring threshold, because you're training them to keep going down, mm -hmm. you know, they typically would go 10 to 100 fold from what they were necessarily being trained at. And that was pretty good. Right. Uh, but then uh, one group of dogs started to be trained to a lower concentration. And a lower concentration, we did yeah. two subsequent lower dilutions to that, whereas a control group of dogs stayed, kept, at, the same. stayed at the same concentration had the same number of training trials, and we just repeated it over and over. So the training wasn't this wasn't different. Mm -hmm. You know, the dogs had the same amount of training time, but then we reassessed threshold, and the dogs that, you know, got trained to those explicitly lower concentrations, I think it was about 100-fold better mm -hmm. detection threshold than the yep. dogs that had the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and that's just because we wanted them to go low, so we trained them to go low, and they yep. went low. Yeah. Um, so if you want them to go low, you need to explicitly train it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, then, and same for high too. I'd imagine. Yep. So um, uh, there was a just had a paper out with high, which was a situation with a really high, large found of ampho, um, where the dogs had previously been trained because of a variety of different types of limitations. Um, I can't remember to thirty grams of, of ampho, and the dogs were great. But then there was a operational find uh, where the dogs didn't alert to to uh, there was two clears. Um, and then it turned out to be a large amount of info. Yes. Um, and the question was, well, why? And, you know, as we were just talking about, we were like, well, was it the context? Was mm -hmm. it just because there's a strange bag sitting out of the field? You know, you know, maybe they just didn't think to ever train to go out to a single bag. And that, I, I would have thought that that could have very well been it. But then we basically did a series of tests and we found that one, you could put their 30 grams of info in a strange bag at the end of the field and they hit it 100%. Yeah. You put the same 30 pounds of info in the same type of bag at the end of a field and there's nothing. Yeah. Then if you take a subsample of that really big amount, uh -huh. just down to 30 grams, they hit it at like 75 to 80%. There was a bit of a decrement because that, sure. that type of it was slightly was different. Slightly different. But still, if you had two dogs each at 80%, you would have had a really high chance of getting a sure. positive there. So that was unlikely to be it. And then you train them specifically to 30 grams of the exact substance that is the high amount. They still had trouble going to the high amount when you put it out the first couple of times. Uh -huh. They picked it up really quick, but there was still that kind of decrement going from that low to that high. From our experience... You know, I, I think this is also going to be very odor dependent. There really needs to be uh, a, a chunk of research on that because uh, perceptually some odors will be really quite consistent across a really large range of, mm -hmm. of concentrations. But we do know that there are several odors that have perceptual quality differences. I was just going to say they might smell different. At like, yeah, what we it smells like this. Like you would say, let's just say mint. It smells like mint at this level, and then all of a sudden you go tenfold up or whatever it is, and now it smells like 
chocolate or whatever. It's totally, it would be perceived totally different, even though the chemicals are the same. Is that, am I kind of explaining it correctly? Yeah. So like there's, there's the molecule that smells at low concentrations. We add to perfume because it smells like a white floral smell. Mm -hmm. I love jasmine. So I'm really into white floral (laughs) smells. Gardenia is actually my favorite. Uh, But anyway, so you take that and and in low concentrations, which is at about the same concentration as in the flower, uh, it smells beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of high, you know, uh, purify it to make it a high concentration. Smells like poop, quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know that you would not necessarily yeah. even recognize that this is the same odor. Is that what was happening to the dogs? I, you know, it could just be that this was different enough, you know, but mm-hmm. the, you know, it might have been perceptually similar. But it's also not uh, outside of the realm that the perceptual difference that they could have been so different. And in fact. There was a study in people, it was a, an older one, that that several odors that varied by more than a hundredfold in concentration smelled as different as completely different molecules. Wow. So, um, so but yeah, so the whole roundabout thing is that we got really interested in concentration because a lot of times, you know, we're so busy talking about how similar the different molecules are related to each other. Then we're talking about how it, the same molecule in a mixture is different. Then we thought, well... You know, how big is just the exact same molecule, just at different concentrations, that even that can generate very different perceptual qualities to the point that sometimes you get an alert, sometimes you don't, so that you have to also think about, you know, what is the concentration I need to find? Mm -hmm. And if I need to find that concentration, then I should at least run test trials to make sure that the dogs will. Yeah, especially for narcotics handlers or bomb handlers, actually either or that are out there. To, you know, public safety aspects. Uh, this goes across the board anything. I don't care. You know, I'm picking on those just because those are the common ones that people think of. Um, and those get given kits, training aid kits, that are typically set amounts and a set mixture as well. You know, they get a training aid from maybe it's DEA or a, they get their explosive materials from whatever manufacturer. And those have very specific sets to them both mixture and amount. And all of a sudden, when these dogs get exposed to something, it's the same chemical, just different mixture or different amount, all of a sudden they get a varied response. And I like using this analogy um, that Temple Grand had made about learning and autism and, and dogs If you know, are very similar in nature. If you showed it a picture, uh, an autistic child, a picture of a car, and they see that picture, and then, you know, you show them a different picture later on of a different car and you say this is a car. They're going to say, no, it's not a car. The other picture is a car. And the importance of showing all these different variables, but it's still the same thing. And these things are reinforcing in the dog world as we're describing it. Uh, it's important to keep showing those varieties and say, this is still a car. It looks like this. It's still a car. It looks like this. This is still a car. And dogs, you know, if you're only training on this car, they're always going to believe, well, that's that's not a car, you know, in a, in a sense of smell. Um, picky, or piggybacking on that was I'm going to share a cool conversation we had with a friend of mine. He's a narcotics canine handler here locally. He came here and he was relaying to us a story. Um, his dog is trained on meth, cocaine, heroin. And he happened to be training with another agency and they had MDMA out. And he was talking about how his dog nailed the MDMA. And he was told and, you know, had looked up a little bit himself how chemically similar MDMA was to cocaine. And that's why his dog alerted was because of the chemical uh, 
aspect was, oh, it's so close. That's why this dog alerted. And I love the story that you gave him, which was, yeah, not so much, because you could simply just change an atom within that, and it smells completely different. I'll let you kind of explain what you explained to him, just so the audience can hear that assumption that was made and how truly that was way more of an assumption than what reality is. Yeah, well, with, with uh, complex molecules, it's very hard to predict how how slight variations will lead to perceptual similarity or differences. Um, so, like, that particular one is carbone. You know, the, um, <clears throat> it, basically on one carbon uh, around it, it's a stereoisomer. It has two versions, L uh, and R versions. And um, essentially... One version will smell largely like shoe leather. It's kind of, I don't know, I think it's kind of stinky. Sure. The other one smells more like mint or like a spearmint kind Mm -hmm. of thing. You know, and your nose is so sensitive that you would not even perceptually recognize these two molecules that have the exact same chemical formula as being similar. They would actually smell completely completely different. different. There are other stereoisomers that are indistinguishable to your nose. Um it's just very hard to look at the chemical structure of any type of molecule and say, this will smell like this. And in fact, there have been some studies that have actually done an okay job, but basically requires supercomputers to try and figure out how certain molecules will end up smelling mm-hmm. like. And they can get kind of decently at it, but still, there, there's no clear one-to-one relationship except in a handful of things. So one is like, you know, if you just have a straight chain, carbon chain, and you add one molecule, so like ethanol, right, our favorite kind of alcohol, mm-hmm. you add one carbon to it, you have propanol. You add another carbon to it, you have butanol, three, four, etc. So those all actually smell relatively similar to each other, and the dogs will generalize pretty well among those. We, we tested those. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the further you get away, if you train the dog to pentanol, which is five, you know, the dog will easily discriminate between... Uh, five carbon and two carbon ethanol and a seven carbon heptanol um, and even easier for octanol, et cetera. And they'll generalize to those one carbon. So there, there is, you know, consistency between the chemical similarity and perceptual similarity. But once you start going off into different branches, different, you know, where is your different functional group? If there's a different functional group, it becomes very, very difficult to do that. And in reality, the answer is you got to test it. You know, yep. and you got to test it in a controlled way. And it's one of those where, and especially because this is all coming from humans, right? There isn't really a great way. We've been working on this actually really hard is how do you say, what does this smell like to you? Sure. Right. That's a very complicated question to ask. So we've been working on that. But right now there isn't really a way to, you know, to ask mm-hmm. that of the dog. So most of the these studies are all about human perception, which you know, how do, then do we map that onto the dog's perception? Sure, yeah. So the only real way is to do a controlled study to see, do you spontaneously generalize if you're trained on this to that? Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you know, your dog is trained on this and then they just happen to alert there, you got to think, you, you got to rule out context effects. You've got to rule out that this was the end of, you know, five boxes and this just happened to be in what was in uh-huh. box six. You got to rule out that this is just the novel odor, right? You know, the Correct. dog has walked or familiar distractors and just responded to the newest thing. Um, so you have to rule out all of those things before um, yeah. making that determination. It's not easy. No. And it was one of the things that I brought up to him was, you know, 
that MDMA was put out in almost the exact same way as the other training aids. So in the dog's context, if it's generalizing, it said, okay, there's a foreign smell here set up in the exact same way as the other odors. So, and it was, there's human odor here too. Oh, look, other dogs have run. So let's say there's other dog smells there. So before you know it, you have three or four of the check boxes that exist in this dog's context. The only thing missing is this one doesn't smell like the other ones I train on. So those dogs that will generalize really well will go, I'll go ahead and give you uh, the, the trained behavior that you're looking for. I also got to think, you know, is, is, and I don't know if this was this case at all, but sure. just generally, you know, did I find a plastic baggie in a desk? Uh-huh. <laughs> or did I find a plastic baggie in a, in a wheel well? Did I uh-huh. find a plastic baggie in a car door kind of thing, you yep. know, or a oh, burlap yeah. sack or, you know, things like that. So, And those are the important things that I want handlers to think of. You know, a lot of times they go, you know, they'll go, oh, yeah, I put, you know, or why is my dog alerting to a distractor is one. Um, and I'm like, well, have, did you just place the distractor out or did you hide it the exact same way you hide your training aids? And that could be a, a problem. So I demonstrated this recently uh, at, at a training session, and I've talked about it before in another podcast, where I just put that distractor out on a stairway, and the dogs walked right by it. But I put it in a door jam, and almost every dog wanted to alert to it because contextually, it was hidden similar to a trained target odor. But when I laid it out and it's there available from them to smell, they walked right by it. Now, conversely, I've done the same thing with target odor, put target odor out just loose on a table or on a chair and watch dogs walk right by it because it wasn't put out in a hide. So these are important things that I, I want handlers to consider when they're making an argument to or for something. But in this case, in regards to this handler, we had the fun of reminding him, remember, you're a dog handler, not a chemist. Stay in your lane. Only testify to things in relation to what your dog, your dog's trained to do, what you've you're, you've had your training experience in relation to your dog. Don't try to go down wormholes of, well, I think this is why because I, I read something in chemistry or another handler told me just because you're, if your dog's trained on meth, it'll automatically hit MDMA. You know, that's another famous one I get. So, well, I mean, uh, to to sort of speak on to that to some degree is one thing that I encourage and like is just uh, in it, you know, is explore curiosity. And a sure. lot of times people will think that the scientific that's, you know, quote unquote science has to be done by some special person with thousands of dogs and some kinds of situations. And in fact, a lot of science can actually be done with one dog, just sure. your dog, yeah. right? Because it depends on your question. You know, do you want to know, will all dogs hit on this thing if I train them on that? Well, then, yeah, you need a lot of dogs. But if mm-hmm. your question is, is will my dog hit, you know, if I train him on this? Well, you just set up a, a, a test yeah. or an experiment. You do it. Because a, a lot of times the question will be is, you know, can you tell me what the answer was of this specific situation? The answer is, I don't know most of the times. But let's test it. Let's figure it out. Because you can figure it out under most cases. You just have to be curious. And science is about figuring out, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is the reason that you think it is? And how would you develop a test mm-hmm. that could prove that wrong? And that's mm-hmm. the most important thing is, is, you know, you can never prove yourself right. You can prove other things wrong. And then you can then finally sort of accept that yep. this is probably going to be the correct answer. So you have to figure out, you know, would there be a way to try and falsify what I was thinking about? Like, you know, am I convinced that my dog hit on it because of chemical similarity? Well, let's rule out all of these other potential factors and then, you know, create a test that would indicate, you know, that they might be similar, repeat it in different contexts, 
you know, remove uh, other potential context cues. You know, these mm-hmm. are so because I mean, the answer is I really don't know. Maybe the dog did generalize because of perceptual similarity, but I don't know. But there, are, that could also be a testable question that sure. you could figure out. And I think that you know, just taking a scientific method approach mm-hmm. to solving some of these questions, um, you know, w- would be great because sometimes we say that oh, we don't know. But it's just because we just haven't tested it yet, sure. not because we can't know. And, and it's one of those things I've, I've gotten into before is that particular dog's ability. We have the, I've seen it in your research, dogs that are down to the parts per trillion as opposed to a dog who's parts per million. And, you know, handlers don't ever have that information about their dog. They don't know how particular – there's things that we see um, – you know, I've seen running numerous dogs. There are certain dogs that I can tell pick up things that sometimes further away, but may struggle as they get closer to it. And then other dogs that walk right up to it and go, oh, it's right here. And that's either too sensitive or the one that's not as sensitive gets right on top of it and goes, oh, there it is. So, um, you know, the dog's individual nose sensitivity is a, is a another factor that we have to think of sometimes or consider. Um, but unfortunately, without really knowing is my dog the Michael Jordan of noses or is it, you know, just like me standard, you know, there's no way I'm playing basketball. So, you know, these are things like that. Um, another thing that I, I wanted to talk to, I know this is part uh, more near and dear to Mallory's heart is odor hygiene. How important is keeping good quality control measures for your training aids, Mallory, what are some important things that handlers need to hear when it comes to storage and placing your odors out? What are some, like, give me Mallory's top five important things when it comes to odor storage and then placement of odor and handling of odor in your training. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, So actually thinking about what you are storing your training aids in. Um, I think that's really important. Sometimes it's just a baggie and a mason jar or, you know, whatever you're given in your, your kit or whatever you have available. Um, I think basically put a glass jar would be most effective and having some kind of sealant, um, you know, Teflon or some kind of top that's not, you know, leaking air out of it. So like the mason jars are, are okay. But if you think about the lid, to truly seal that lid, you have to, what, like pressure boil it or put it in water for it to be, like, canned, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be feasible when you're having training aids and such. So just really thinking about, you know, the container that you have. You don't want it to be um, dispersing that powder or your training aid, whatever material it is, out and then contaminating your other training aids or your storage of where you're putting it so then everything is smelling like that specific odor, Um, So just thinking about, you know. So with mason jars, talk about the lid. You kind of hit on it there a second ago. Um, You know, and ironically, I had a a question that came in recently, uh, just the past day or so, about the lids. And the question was like, well, silicone should be just fine. Uh, But mason jars, circling back to that real quick, mason jars have those unique lids that are two-piece. And those tend to be the problematic part. Talk about the lids and what are the things. And then let everyone know what a SEPTA is that has the Teflon and silicone in it. Yeah, so the jars that we use are glass with a little SEPTA rubber. And we have the SEPTA rubber in, inside of the the lid. So it's kind of like a whole 
and the plastic lid goes around that so we can pierce it with our olfactometers. Um, but really having that a thin layer of that septa and then having the jar on top to really seal that jar closed. Um, like the mason jars that has that little metal piece on top, but it's not truly sealed if you're just, you know, spinning the top on and, uh -huh. you know, putting it on without properly sealing it like you would for canning or something, something like that. So having that little septa uh, filter in between your lid would really help seal that and keep that odor inside. And I'll describe it for the listeners. Basically, you want a one-piece lid, and in some cases, it's a insert. A septa is like this. It looks like a plastic disc, and it would fit inside the lid. That goes on top of your jar. You put your lid on, and that is like that barrier between the lid, the jar, but it really locks down anything being able to come out of that jar. So it keeps your odors from talking to each other. So now that you have your glass jar, you got the proper lid, um, and your materials inside your glass jar, do you, obviously we deal with, in the narcotics world, most of these narcotics are kept within an evidence bag. Uh, you can put your evidence bag inside a jar. Should you also put it inside a um, canvas bag, or, so the canvas bag, you know, how, you, what's the problem with some of these external carriers let's call them not just storage but now i'm gonna go put it out in my training area in this canvas bag what's a problem that you run into with that yeah so when it wasn't in um you know a proper jar it was in like that little folder like the manila envelope looking thing yeah um the odor was getting out and then it was in this canvas bag so then you're basically just spreading the molecules of odorant everywhere and so you just have contamination of at least that odor, if not multiple, if you have multiple in that one bag. Mm -hmm. So really, if you you can put that envelope in your jar um, and have a proper lid so it's not going everywhere, and that'll solve that problem of, you know, having that odor disperse without in that jar, in that canvas bag. Um, so really, just the jar is going to be really important, and then you can um, have it temperature controlled and not too hot, not too cold, depending on... So Where keeping it in the trunk of the car is probably not the best idea. Oh, right. <laughs> now, okay, so I've got my jars. I've got my materials in my jar. Do I put all my jars, each odorant, you know, so let's say it's heroin, cocaine, meth. Do I just take all my jars into one case? Or is it better to have heroin's jar and in heroin's case, cocaine's jar and cocaine's case, and then, you know, meth jar in meth's case? is can you shove them all into one case or is it better to have them in its own case? Uh, yeah, I would say it's better to have them in their own case so you're not concerned about, you know, crossing the contamination. But, I mean, theoretically, if you have a closed jar, that's something that, you know, we could test and see if it would, yeah. if it's, come, if you have a proper jar, theoretically, <sighs> if it's closed and nothing's coming out, you should be able to put it all together and that's mm -hmm. just something we could test. Um, you know, test the jar to see if there's leakage. And if there isn't, then, yeah, theoretically, you could have all, you know, all five jars with different odorants in the same container. Uh, and, and I know the other equation to that is, you know, I myself am a not a great odor, sterile type person. So the problem that happens is I go to my 
case with all my jars, open up one jar and go, oh, let's look in this one. Okay, let me go to the next jar, open that jar up. Uh, and now my jars are all hanging out next to each other, all open as I'm trying to decide what I want to put out in training. And now I'm just contaminating everything anyway. So uh, I can say from the user standpoint, when I had my stuff separately, I was less likely to do mistakes like that versus right. just opening up my one box and then randomly opening my items up and they're all mixing together. I see that obviously quite frequently, even in the now, in the sport world, they have their essential oils and they just have that one case. And the, those oils are so sticky uh, when it comes as far as odor goes. So now we're just contaminating everything. But in their world, that's a reality, obviously. You know, uh, their training materials aren't always going to be perfect, never are. And you have to get those dogs used to the different kind of contaminations with these oils. Um, the other thing in this same conversation, though, that I get question-wise is how do I clean my, let's say, my training containers? Um, whether it be the stainless steel cans to my glass jars to even, let's just say, my box, if it's made out of HTPE or some type of plastic, or my elbow pipes, what tips can you give people for cleaning? Um, let's go with containers and then training boxes or training lineups. What's a, a good way to clean each type? Yeah, so at the lab, um, to clean like the, the jars and the lids and maybe any other uh, mixing materials, uh, we basically sterilize it in the dishwasher with Alkanox, and then you can clean it. Um, you know, we also have a ultrasonic cleaner, um, and then we put it in an oven to dry. Um, so those are all, you know, unique equipment that not everybody's going to have. So it's a little challenging. Um, but we use Alkanox detergent, uh, to clean. Um, and you can also use some kind of like methanol alcohol to dry it and that evaporates pretty quickly. And that's what we use. Um, if we're traveling and we need to wipe down, you know, an odor port or whatnot between dogs. So it's, uh, getting getting clean in between runs. And where do you get this chemical? Is it do you have to mix it or you know how do you the Alkanox? Yeah. Um. So I'm pretty sure we just get it from Amazon. Yeah. The Alkanox yeah. makes uh, like Liquinox and Citra something. Uh, one is made for the dishwasher. One is made for soaking. Okay. Yeah. One is made for like a hand soap kind of thing. It's just a very convenient laboratory cleaner thing. Does it leave its own smell afterwards or does it evaporate? Like, how do I know my dog won't start going off of Aquanox or Liquinox? Well, you clean everything to it, but the type of cleaner is that it's a non-scented cleaner. And okay. I mean, use this with a grain of salt, right? Everything's got some type of scent mm -hmm. or something like that. But, but if you're in comparison to Dawn soap or something like sure. that. So you, you, after you finish it, you rinse it clean. Then you do some type of methanol rinse or ethanol rinse if you can get, you know... I guess you could probably just get Everclear. I don't know. We don't. Yeah. We can just buy methanol. And yeah. Ethanol. That's not a problem. But maybe you just have to get uh, some type of ethanol of like through Everclear or something like that and bake it off um, uh, as a way of. of, of so maybe putting about. it outside in the sunlight is something that's helpful for using the UV rays from the sun or. Possibly. But then you, I don't know, who knows what dirt and stuff. Sure. Of course. Blow in. But generally yep. speaking, you just want to make sure that your whole system is kind of clean quite similarly mm -hmm. you know and if your dogs will blank on your blanks then yeah then you're good um but yeah and and you know there's there's no like ideal there's nothing no perfect you know there's no sure. like odor free or this will clean off all yeah. odors kind of things 
Um, but it's a it, it's frequently used just for laboratory cleaning stuff, mm-hmm. just because it doesn't leave much of a residue. It cleans very nicely. Yeah, ultrasonic cleaners are great. Dishwashers are great. Um, now but, with dishwashers, are we afraid of? Um, Let's just say, because I'll use my own. Let's say I go downstairs, throw my training aids uh, containers into my dishwasher. My dishwasher has been used for 10 years using detergent soaps in there. Will that be then basically contaminating my those, those containers that we we're just talking about? Uh, I've seen your dishwasher, so quite probably. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, you can also get... Um, I'm the average user, remember that. <laughs> yeah, they they make um, uh, like countertop dishwashers. Yeah. Mean, this is probably a little bit over the top for your yeah. average That's user. what I was getting at is yeah, some of the, you know, because someone may hear cases. dishwasher, oh, great, I'll throw it in my dishwasher and not really yeah. know they've so added I mean, a really whole bunch. To, they have countertop dishwashers that are quite convenient for that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but but yeah, the main thing is you're treating the all top, the jars the same. You're cleaning them with the same cleaner. So your yeah. blanks, your distractors, your your targets. Yep. Yeah, and you just avoid different kinds of scented soaps and things like that mm-hmm. for that. And these provide a nice, um, you know, quote unquote, unscented way to do that. Um, but yeah, and then you just got to make sure that whatever you're using as your hiding sample is not odorous itself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know. Know, think of like canvas bags or think about something that, um, you know, especially if you're dealing with something low vapor pressure, that might smell potentially even more than something else. Mm-hmm. You might end up with a bag detection dog that has a discrimination <laughs> between uh-huh. different kinds of bags or something yep. like that. Or if you don't have out blank bags, then you just have a pure bag detector dog. And, sure. You know, and you may not realize Yep, or a marker detection dog because they wrote on the bag with whatever Sharpie they had nearby to say what it was or what the amount was. And, yeah. you know, and that leads into, you know, doing distracting and proofing odors, um, you know, as a, again, part of that good sound training procedure. Um, what are some good bits of information, you know, being a good steward of putting out distracting and proofing odors? But I also know dogs get pretty used to distracting and proofing odors when we put them out, you know, as far as how long they've been in something or, uh, you know, the type, um, how often or how frequently should you be changing out? Let's just say I'm a handler and I said, okay, I'm a narcotics handler. I'm working interdiction. So motor grease is important thing. Oil is another important thing. Uh, tire rubber is another. So you have multiple jars of all these things, plus an ev- a bag or an evidence bag as a distractor, tape, and so forth. How often should I change those things out? Because after the dogs run them numerous times, don't they kind of become the dog would go, yep, yeah, I know that's not what I'm getting paid for. But just a couple days later, I put a new evidence bag out or a new thing of oil out. All of a sudden, now I have interest. Why does that occur? And, and, and that ties into how often you should change those things out. Yeah, I think the answer to how often you should change those out goes back to the to the point of you can do your own test kind of thing, right? Yeah. You put out something new, the dog alerts, then you've been spending too long time with the, <laughs> with the same distractors, right? Yes. You know, you can kind of let your dog and let your, your own sort of data collection tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, most definitely you can have... Uh, Know, the dogs are learning everything they possibly can, uh, and they could, you know, very learn, very easily learn. It's not X, Y, A, B, C, but mm-hmm. whatever else is there is going to be it. 
And you have to think about, you know, is what I'm training my dog to find something really hard to find? And if the answer is always not this easy thing to find, this easy thing to find, or that mm-hmm. easy thing to find, and it's just the one thing that's remaining, then, yeah, by all means, they, they could potentially be finding, you know, be using the distractors as, as a guide towards uh-huh. the queue or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the answer is to how frequently should I change them out? There isn't a rule, but it's, again, one of those things that you can mm-hmm. set up your own experiment, you know, change out a new set of distractors, and if you see a performance decrement based off of some type of test or measurement that you did, then you knew that you, you went too long. Yeah. If you put out a new set, you know, and the dogs do just fine, then great, you're you're moving along at, at the appropriate pace with changing them out. Yeah. So you guys have talked about a couple of different studies you've done. How do people, what's the, you mentioned uh, uh, the university website or what you guys had. Um, tell us again, like how do we find some of these papers besides the odor threshold study, besides our handler effects study? Um, what's some, what's another popular study that you've done that is pretty important in the detection dog world that people kind of, you know, it's good for them to go look at or go potentially read for us geeky handlers. Um, I would, I guess, uh, I don't know how long you're going to give me before you post this. I can probably update the website sure, uh, to make sure that it's up to date for, of the, of the last year. But so this is the, this is the secret on publications and stuff like that. So when you go into publications and you sort of click the little links, there'll be a couple of things that'll happen. Sometimes it'll open up and it'll give you the full page and you could download mm-hmm, it and mm-hmm. read it to your heart's desire. Um, some have paywalls. And then some will have a paywall. It'll say, hey, you need to pay $30. Never pay $30 to do that. There's a whole scam of publishing that, you know, it's a long story. We could have a whole separate sure. podcast on that, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, just email the corresponding author on it. Uh-huh. I have full rights to give you the paper. Yeah. I just can't sometimes post it somewhere. I can post it on my own website, which is what I try to do, but sometimes yeah. I just get... Caught up with but other stuff. If you just email the person, mm-hmm. um, then you can always get the paper. So if there's mm-hmm. ever a paper you're missing, just email it to me because sometimes mm-hmm. we we have to pay an arm and a leg to get it open access so that you can see it. Like wow. it costs us a ton of money. Uh-huh. Sometimes we don't have a ton of money, sure, just to do it. But there's that's not because we don't want you to see it. We yeah, in fact, really want you to see it. Yeah. Uh, so send it to us, and also you know feel free to email questions. That's kind of what we do. Yeah. I mean, we're just. Uh, I'm just sitting there waiting for an email to come. <laughs> we do do other things, but yeah. I mean, the, the the whole purpose of this, right, is I'm not trying, we're not trying to do all of this research to just sort of, I don't know, have a paper somewhere that's sitting there not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wherever it can be helpful is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So that's- no, and, and, I, and I've seen it firsthand, you know, the, all you listeners out there is he is, Nathan and Mallory both are very open to help. Um, the story he gave about the explosives was through a friend of mine that it was his unit that he had that incident happen. And I was like, contact Nathan. And that helped uh, save some embarrassment in his unit because supervisors didn't understand why dogs wouldn't alert if they were trained on this chemical. Why didn't they alert on it at this kind of context, that that amount? Um, So people like Nathan and Mallory and Dr. Uh, Paula Tiedemann over at Texas Tech with you guys and Lauren DeGrieff and others, they're all very willing to help you guys with questions. I know people, uh, I honestly get 30 to 40 
emails a day with questions, people wanting to, hey, can you tell me this? I do my best to defer to the experts if I don't have the best information, and these are the people who are the ones I go to. So don't be afraid to, if you got questions, also, we all ask for patience. <laughs> Sometimes, like I said, there's a bunch of emails that come in. We may not be able to reply to you within 24 hours, or it may take a week or so, but bear with us. Sometimes the gentle nudge reminder is always helpful because as those emails stack up, yours might slide down that list, and we all forget about it. But we all want to help. We all want to share that information with you guys. And I'll wrap the episode up with this. The, our, our key takeaways that I wanted to share with you guys on this episode was basically the handler bias part was keep yourself as neutral as possible. Push yourself in training to test these things and call yourself out on your behaviors that are kind of coming out to influence. Don't be afraid to run blind. Also, double blind wasn't the end all be all as far as a reliability aspect. It's a helpful thing, but it's not the end all be all. And then understanding odor mixtures, making assumptions about this chemical is so closely related to this one, the dogs will automatically alert isn't going to be the answer. Just because your dog is trained on meth doesn't mean it's going to hit MDMA. Or just because your dog is trained on cocaine doesn't mean it's going to hit an MDMA. Just because your dog is trained on this chemical does not mean they will always generalize to another chemical. And I'll, and I'll last, uh, you know, Mallory and I have had this conversation before. We were, we've both been doing electronic type uh, conversations and training of dogs. And even that conversation was initially, we thought TPPO was the go-to chemical. And thanks to research from some uh, our counterparts in the forensic units overseas, we found out that TPPO was not the most ideal chemical. We've learned it's evolved. There's some other ones. And you have to be willing to make those changes. Would you guys kind of agree that this is kind of a good wrap up as some of our key points is one, our assumptions on odor mixtures probably get the better of us. And then two, don't be afraid to push yourself in training and to do things like the blanks and single blinds and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I would say my take home point is that we know substantially less than, yeah. than you think we know, <laughs> Yeah, let alone, you know, Everyone knows substantially less than you think you know. And Even if reality, you've done it 50 years and it's worked great for you, doesn't mean you know everything about it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the more you spend time, like, studying, you know, the more you know or the more you learn, the less you know, right? Yeah. Uh, so you realize sort of how much is still left to know. And the answer to a lot of questions are just going to have to be is you're going to have to test it. Yeah. You're going to have to set up your own little kind of experiments and test it to, to sort out. I mean, that doesn't mean don't reach out by any means. Please do. But um, I think just, you know, taking everything a little bit with a grain of salt and setting up, you know, ways to actually test what's going on and just mm -hmm. don't make assumptions because, uh, you know, assumptions can be can potentially be yep. dangerous. Uh, As they say, the mother of all F-ups. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or assumptions make an asset of you and me. So test it. Make sure you're testing to be as similar to whatever your actual operational condition is. Mm -hmm. You know, think about what the dog is seeing from their perspective and uh, by all means, test it. Because yeah. it doesn't mean anything until you tested it because, you know, what one dog somewhere in the country might do doesn't really matter what to what your uh -huh. dog will do in front of you. Yep. The dog in front of you is, is the key one and, you know, be curious. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. And again, for all those listeners and those that are part of the Ford Canine website, both Mallory and Nathan will have uh, lectures on the website here in our online course soon. They both know I've been you know, harassing them for it. Um, but we've got it nailed down and they'll have, we'll have that up here soon. So not only do you get to listen to them in the podcast, this one and the ones from the past, you'll be able to interact. There's a plenty of webinars I have that Dr. Hall did in, he had a four part series. So you can go to the website and go find those on fordk9.com. If you haven't already seen those, those were great ones. There'll be some new stuff in the online stuff, uh, university and, uh, Dr. Mallory Deschant will also have her too i got to preview a few of them they're they're pretty cool stuff so thank you guys both for being on the podcast yeah thank you and again i will put in the show notes their emails so that way you guys if you guys want to read some of the research papers that we talked about or some other ones or if you're curious like hey i heard a research by so and so they might even be able to steer you in the right direction so don't be afraid to do that Again, thank you everybody for listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.